This episode is brought to you in part by Candorel. Coming soon, a luxury master-planned condominium community rising at the corner of Bathurst and St. Clair. Situated directly on the subway and streetcar line, a monument of architecture and interior design, a timeless expression of glamour and grace. Forêt Forest Hill. Register today at liveatforêt.ca. That's live at f-o-r-e-t This is Bonjour Chai, the You Are What You Eat edition. I'm Avi Feingold in an undisclosed location deep in the USA, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we are talking kosher. Are there ethical concerns that go beyond simply what goes in your food? We will talk to Richard Rapkin from the COR to hear about that. Plus, we have two recent rabbinic graduates to offer us a word of wisdom. So this whole episode started coming together when I spoke about Kaplansky's mustard for my nachas a while back. I don't know if you guys remember that. I do. Um, so I... I then heard from Zane Kaplansky about his saga regarding getting his mustard actually certified. And we'll hear that story, you know, later on. Uh, But before we do, I wanted to briefly go into some of the other episodes that have occurred recently around the world of kosher, right? There's this restaurant in Hamilton that was subject to community members casting aspersions on its kashrut due to the certifying rabbi being conservative. Meanwhile, Slice and Bites, a popular Toronto pizza joint, had a moment where they were asked to stop seating customers on Saturday night due to teens using it as a hangout. And most egregiously of all, if you ask me, in the U.S., a restaurant had its certification pulled after its chef owner, Shalom Yehudiel, was credibly accused of sexually abusing a minor. So I'm guessing now is a good time, Zenny, to question what kosher is all about in 2022. Um, before we get too deep into any of that, I want to know, like, what's your guys' relationship to kosher and the kosher economy as a whole? I grew up fully kosher. We only ate out at kosher restaurants and I had a kosher home. Um as I've gotten older, uh, become a bit more lenient. I'll, I'll eat out uh, dairy and vegetarian, but I won't eat out any of the creepy crawly seafood, which I never have eaten in my life, um, or or pork or any trafe meat. Don't mind the horn in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's like trafe. <laughs> um, but uh, I accidentally became a, a pescatarian in Vancouver when kosher meat was just really inaccessible from where I lived. You have to drive like 30 to 40 minutes out of your way or take like an hour of transit just to get to a kosher uh, place, which all of it is shipped from Montreal. They don't have they don't really have like kosher butchers in Vancouver that I was able to find. Um, so I would mostly eat my meat at Chabad if I went there for a Friday night dinner or when I would go home to visit my family. And I mostly ate, you know, what they call ground fish. I learned in the Maritimes. It's like the scaly fish It's called ground fish there. Um, and um, vegetarian. And I cook a lot of vegan food just I, by proxy now. I try to only eat water fish as opposed to ground fish. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, Alana, you spent how many years in Vancouver? About five. And yet you denied yourself all the pleasures of the high quality of seafood. Well, I did eat seafood, just not the kind you're talking about. Y- you were missing You were missing shrimp. You were missing the lobster. You were missing First the of crab. All, you were missing all these wonderful you can, foods. I've had many great, I know, I'm sure it doesn't taste the same, but I actually do buy the imitation crab and lobster sometimes. That is not the same <laughs> thing Here's the thing, David. If you grew all. up eating kosher, you do not miss it you don't know what you're missing and to be honest a lot of it looks disgusting to me because i've never eaten it okay i i also grew up having it living and in a kosher house right so despite what many of my friends did 
I also was subject to the laws of kashrut growing up. The difference was with my family, we were able to eat out whatever that, we that, wanted that's to. Difference. And you, that's how you I knew. Were eating that, it. You were eating it, just not in your house. I was I never was, eating I, I was shackled David, to the laws of kashrut at home, and I was liberated, David's, free to eat what I wanted. David's want. dishes, David's family's dishes are going <laughs> to heaven. Uh. But I never understood this. So it's like my mom had two sets of dishes. Everything was kashrut. She would never allow us to bring in, you know, Pizza Hut or McDonald's, but I could eat it in the car. I could have my McDonald's in the car. But as soon as we crossed the threshold of the door to our home, that was not allowed. And I knew, and then I knew what was out there. Well, maybe that's the problem. This is what, this is what always like confused me growing up is how people only keep it in their house, but not out of their house, because then like, I just don't understand the point. No offense to your family. Um, but I will say that my argument is that I do think that Kashrut is something that keeps us together as a people. It's something that has defined us for a really long time. And in the same way that, you know, if we start losing different traditions, when we talked about the nostalgia episode many, many weeks ago, if it boils down to like eating a smoked meat sandwich what do we really have left? And I think Kashrut is something that but has this always is so untenable. Us. This is so untenable. Avi, what do you think? <laughs> what do I think? Um, I think I'm going to come a little bit to David's defense and say, um, people, what? People I am so surprised. Keep kosher at home. Like I said, uh, I, I know I was being facetious and saying, oh, yes, your home is going straight to, to the Garden of Eden, right? To, to dine with all the other kosher homes, right? In heaven, right? But at some point, there's an awareness that kosher is a thing. Um, you may not feel entirely compelled to do it, but you're you're, you're trying in some way or, or, or fashion to do that. Sure. Right? Why is he any different than you who go and says, oh, well, I eat a dairy out when you know full well that if it's not being certified, yeah. that there's probably something that might be problematic there. What, what I was what right, I you're doing the opposite. That... Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I get I get very contradictory sometimes because there's like the younger me of the way I grew up. And then there's the me now mm -hmm. that's like constantly the questioning your, and it's the title of your memoir. Out. Accidental pescatarian, a, a, a confused life. I think the difference, though, is that like I'm already eating dairy at home, whether it's like cross contaminated. That's a whole other story. But like I've never like not eaten shrimp in my house and then gone out and eaten it, know what it's like and wish I could bring it in like that never occurred. So I just find it interesting. You know, I'm going to say I have uh, another confession to make, and I am saying this first time it's breaking news, and I'm, I think I'm going to upset my mom right now, where I was so opposed right to the philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would later tonight. I'll be making a shrimp dinner probably, but I was so upset at her arbitrary rules around kashrut law. I would sometimes sneak in non-kosher food to the house and eat it without her knowing. Sorry, mom. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, I rubbed a little bit of Pizza Hut on the plate, and I just put it back in the kitchen. <laughs> like in the same. Um, yeah. So in that sense, I think that everybody does certain things and everybody's aware of things in their own, you know, way of doing things. And everybody follows rules the way that they think it is, right? Not everybody does it. And so David's family was saying, we care about kosher to a certain extent, but not entirely. And therefore we're, we're doing something about it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, it was, and it was fair, purely, it was purely traditional because what that does is Alana's also right in that food. And I think
think that this is fundamental to the question that we're talking about today. Um, food and kosher food is what brings people together, right? We get together over meals, right? Some of the greatest, most memorable experiences we all have are around Shabbat dinners or around the Seder, and it's around food. And people that care about kosher and thinking about kashrut in this way are thinking about food in a way that... Um, says we want to be together. We want to be connected, not just around the people at our table, but around our ancestors and the way that they ate and their food ways. So in that sense, Alana, you're absolutely right. And David, you know, I'm, you probably are doing something that is related to kosher or Jewish food in your practice today, even I'm guessing. Uh, I bake challah. There you go. So it's something. <laughs> but I'll right. actively push back. So, I'll sort of say, by sort of by, by by saying we need to have these kashrut laws and deny ourselves the pleasure that is out there to really enjoy these wonderful food products, I I really have to question why we are still doing this thing of two thousand years, um, and we think this is going to tie us in as a Jewish people. We are going to say we're not eating pork, we're not eating shellfish anymore, and this is what defines us as a people. I really have a hard time buying into that. Yeah, I think that it it. Y- you buy into it if it's something that works for you, right? If you buy into it, then it's going to work. And there are many people that don't keep kosher and that's their prerogative, right? And that's what's going to work for them. Um, but like, I really, I want to get into some of these larger issues and I want to bring somebody on here um, who is, you know, able to answer, right? Because we, we've dealt with kosher in the past. We've, we, we've all had these discussions. Um, but the issues at hand here today seem to be like going beyond whether shellfish is or should be or should not be and all of these questions about what's going on. And, and, and the questions, the, the stories that I brought up at the, at the top of the show really are much more about some of these extra halach. Well, they're halachic, they're deeply halachic, but they go beyond what's actually dealing with the food. Um, Right. And so we wanted to get into it with the people actually involved in kosher certification. Um, I asked uh, Richard Rapkin if he would join us today. Richard is the managing director of the COR, Canada's largest kosher certification. Um, Richard, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you for having me. So before we get into some of these stories and some of these issues, which you may not necessarily be able to answer, let's take a step back. What are some of the non-food related reasons why somebody might lose their kosher status? Not paying. Would be probably one, you know, obviously we need to run our operations. So if somebody's not able to pay, um, then we can't provide service. I would say that's the main reason, you know, in general, you know, again, in general, our policy is to keep uh, the kosher uh, certification as it relates to food. Okay. So we try not to uh, try not to get involved in extraneous things. Obviously, if there are uh, other considerations, sometimes they come to play. Uh, I can't think of something offhand, but, you know, for example, we can't just say, well, it's only kosher food, keep it there. If, for example, we were asked to certify, I don't know, a Satan worshiping uh, conference and, um, you know, they were going to say, we're going to have the kosher um, brisket just before we do the child sacrifice. I would probably say that we were not going to provide certification to that event. But this, well, would you, for example, if you were certifying Shalom Yehudiel's establishment, right, would you pull certification if somebody was credibly accused of sexually assaulting a minor? It's a good question. And I don't have an answer for you. We would have to bring it to our board of rabbis to discuss the issue. And that's where we deliberate 
most of the policy issues. You know, these are our, our board of rabbis are made up from, um, you know, rabbis in the community. I think we have about 15 to 20 rabbis who are on this board. And, you know, obviously they take communal issues seriously, kosher issues seriously. So we would have to weigh it. Thankfully, we've never been faced with such an issue. You maybe weren't faced with this type of issue, but I am curious, would you ever commit to hosting a wedding of an interfaith marriage? Would you subscribe to, you know, accepting someone who isn't fully interpreting halachic Jewish law, someone who is dating a non-Jew? So again, our contracts are with our caterers. So for example, if a caterer um, at, you know, shul XYZ um, is, is, has an event uh, and it's either, we, we don't kind of look into the status of what is happening in the event, who they're marrying, did they, is, it, is the conversion, an Orthodox conversion, uh, you know, our, our contracts are with the caterers. So we provide a service and we fulfill the service to that kid. Just because, and I, I, I am bringing this up, I am curious, uh, your organization has fired someone in the past who was fully Jewish, according to halachic in, in, interpretation. I am thinking of Shimon Lipovenko, who was dating a non-Jew and thus deemed to have lost the company's trust some way down the road. I'm curious if this is something your organization still would support. So I can't speak to any, you know, open legal matters um, on advice of legal counsel, but I can just say to you that our mashkichim need to um, follow, as this is in accordance with halacha, as it's been for thousands of years, our mashkichim need to be uh, orthodox and follow halacha um, in the prescribed way. So if they are in their personal lives doing something that contravenes that, then they can't serve um, as a, a mashkiach uh, no longer in that capacity. So if we are talking, and I just want to press this subject a little bit further, you know, we talked about they have to have, they have to be fully Jewish and subscribe to halachic interpretation. But then would that, would that still be the same thing for someone who was practicing, let's say, Lashon Hara, speaking ill of other people, or even having a tattoo? If someone was to discover to be doing something like that, would that also be cause for them to be terminated? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there are, this is a complicated area. And so it kind of requires, I think, the involvement of rabbis who are pretty, um, you know, high up on the totem pole, so to speak. But if you had, let's say, uh, let's say you have a mashkiach who says, you know, I am Orthodox, um, but I have a passion for cheeseburgers that I cannot, it's, it's insatiable. I must eat cheeseburgers. Uh, but, you know, I, you'll see me in shul. And I'm davening like you've never seen before. We would say thank you for your davening spirit. But um, because of your cheeseburger problem, we will need to discontinue our employment relationship. One last nitpicky question. And then I'm really curious to hear about other areas around Kajiru. Um, What about if a mishkiach was evading their taxes? Would that be something that would count? These are all good questions. And we would need to really sit down and look at them and, you know, again, go through this with the, the board of rabbis to see what qualifies, what doesn't, um, you know, so it's, it's hard to get into the particulars. I, I see that I'm on, sure. the, on the firing line. That's okay. No, no problem. It's... <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. Yeah, this yeah. is just no what problem. we do. No problem. <laughs> it's good fun. No, it's good don't fun. take it personally. I'm curious to hear more about the ethics. Just to give you background on me. Um, I am kosher. I grew up kosher. And I always had uh, this idea in my mind. I, I mean, I know that it is rooted in something, 
um, that it's more ethical to the, the way that um, we kill the animals and that they're treated differently. And I know that was the case in the past. And recently, some people have come up and told me that that's not always true anymore because of the technologies that non-kosher companies um, are using that make the deaths, the deaths more instantaneous and that there is still a lot of factory farming. I'm curious to kind of hear uh, your take on this since you're in it. And I'm not just, you know, someone at the grocery store coming up with their theories. Right. So a lot of these things are theories, like you pointed out. So, uh, for example, I, I know what you're talking about. There is a school of thought that, um, you know, if you can put a bolt through the animal and do an electric shock, the animal drops immediately. Um, and then you do the slaughter after that, let's say a cow, for example. So it appears from uh, from the outside that that, you know, it might be more humane. It appears that way, right? Because the animals, whereas if you do it through shrita, um, you know, the animal has a different reaction. It doesn't kind of drop instantaneously, senselessly like that. I have seen a study, a study that was done out of Israel, though, um, that says that the opposite is true, that shrita is more humane because it severs the carotid arteroid, uh, the carotid arteries. Um, and, and even though there may be some, you know, nerve um, movements, that it's still more humane and um, in, the, in the bolting when they do the electric shock, uh, there's actually some brainwave activity that still exists. So, you know, so, so it's it, sometimes it's a little bit different the way things look on the outside as to what the actual reality is. I'll say one other small tidbit, which I find interesting. And when I relate, people uh, also do is that when the, for kosher law, an animal has to be healthy before it's slaughtered, right? It can't have, it can't be sick. Uh, it can't have broken bones. So when they go and they catch chickens, for example, um, when they're paid, the chicken catchers, believe it or not, they go and they have to grab with their arms and they get paid, you know, per chicken that they're able to catch. So the ones that are more effective and can catch more, they get paid a little bit more. Um, so, but when they do that, they're grabbing very quickly. And so they can break the limbs of the chickens by doing that where, and therefore it will be uh, non-kosher uh, if you come in with a, a chicken with a broken limb. So the, the kosher catchers, or at least when they're catching for kosher, they're paid a little bit of a premium to catch gently with two hands to make sure that they don't break any limbs. So what I'm curious about, though, is like if there's such a a, a need to, to defend kashrut, uh, the slaughtering, like shrita itself as a humane practice, um, but there isn't necessarily a lot of thought placed into the living, the, the, the whole, the entire life of the animal up until the moment of slaughter, right? You're going to come and tell me, I, I have a feeling, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, uh, that you, that we don't really look at what's going on with the life of the animal, like in, you know, in a concentrated feeding operation, in the way in which it was raised, where, how it got to the moment of slaughter, you're going to say, well, that's not necessarily our concern. As long as the animal is delivered to us healthy, we are going to uh, slaughter it. Um, but we're going to slaughter it in the most humane way possible. Why aren't, why isn't there a concern as there is with some slaughtering organizations that are kosher, that the entire life of the animal was just as humane and not just the last moment of slaughter? So there are two responses to that question. The first is that you know, in Canada, at least the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is quite a um, robust organization that has requirements for the way that animals 
are fed and treated um, through the life of the animal prior to slaughter. So we're kind of relying on the government to do, um, and I think that it does do a pretty good job of taking care of this area. That's number one, and probably could do it in a, in a way that's more effective and, and robust than we could. The second is that, you know, the way that modern agriculture is, 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 is not like, you know, it used to be in the shtetl where you had the guy and, you know, he had Bessie down the street, the, the farmer had Bessie and you could just go and shaft Bessie. This is, a, you know, totally different environment where you have farms that are located in different areas and they're, they're mass producing animals and, and there's transport involved. And, um, you know, the expertise that we have just is not able to, to take that, you know, control over each step in the supply chain. And frankly, if there was an attempt made to do that, I don't, I don't even know how we would do it. You know, if you're talking about uh, one of the things that I often hear is the cost of kosher food is very expensive. I think that that's more limited to meat and, and what have you, not, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes. But even still, that would be an astronomical increase in the cost of kosher food if you know you had to create some sort of alternate environment to to slaughter animals forgive me but it sounds like you're putting a dollar value on the human the humaneness of the way in which you're raising an animal right you're saying well kosher consumers don't want to pay a certain amount so we're willing to like rely on a more concentrated feeding place right grow and behold for example in the us does a lot of um ethical animal slaughter where they they're very you know transparent about how these animals are raised and how they're slaughtered they do charge a lot more money um, but the nature of it is people eat less meat. And to be fair, if you're talking about the shtetl, people weren't eating nearly as much meat as, as they were, you know, now, and we weren't huge carnivores. We were eating what we could eat. Right. And, uh, so you did what you could. And nowadays people have this desire to eat meat. And so we say, well, we want to keep the prices down. And so we're willing to like, we rely on the government when there's plenty of times when you don't rely on the government necessarily for certification, you go in and say, well, we want, we want to make sure that we do this, right. That's the whole nature behind Chal of Israel, right. Right? which I'm not saying that the COR exclusively does call of Israel, but the whole reasoning behind it is to say, well, we don't trust the government that milk is going to be exclusively coming from cows. So we're going to have the rabbis come in and inspect it. So maybe we shouldn't trust the government um, to check these things because we care about these extra halachic, you know, and they're not extra halachic, they're extra food related, but they're just as halachic to make sure that the animal is, is treated nicely or, or fairly. So the cost uh, argument that I raised was actually tertiary argument. And, and to be fair, to be fair, the cost argument, if, if you going by what you said before, which is we care about the food and we don't want to deal with the other issues, you should say, listen, this is what the cost of making kosher food is. And I'm sorry to the consumer, but it's not really our concern to make sure that the food is as cheap as possible. Yeah. OK, so I think we're fixating on the cost issue, which was really a tertiary thing that I said just at the end. Um, mm -hmm. I said that the CFIA really in Canada is are the experts and we're, we're relying on them. We rely on them in a number of instances. What you raised was actually an interesting analogy um, for, for milk, why milk is kosher, right? Is that we do rely on the, the governmental authorities. So that's an example of where, where we also do rely on government authorities. So um, in general, that's their expertise. Uh, it's not our expertise. So we leave it in their um, capable hands. And, and, and also, you know, frankly, I think it's it might sound to you know uh, it, it sounds to me that the argument that you're making is somewhat um, exclusive 
Meaning it's, you know, you're saying, well, the, the cost of kosher food should be whatever it is. And even if it costs a thousand dollars for brisket, hey, you guys should pay for it. But, you know, the people that I talk to who are having an issue with the cost of kosher food, that to them is an extremely uh, insensitive argument. So I think they're probably too sides of the coin on this. You know, one way I'm, I'm, I'm just jumping in and, and thinking, is there a way to team up with these food safety organizations? Because we now know that, you know, merely inspecting a piece of carcass for any type of blemish or disease, it does not protect the consumer at the end from a potentially infectious food. Have you, has your company ever thought about looking into these technological advances as a way, right, you know, in the short term, it might raise the cost, but then in the long term, it will lower the cost to detect bacteria? Because we now know that merely inspecting chicken or poultry or any type of meat, we can still have some sort of disease. And I'm thinking about the consumer to avoid any harm to these food products. Is there any way of, of, of doing that? to really make sure that the consumer is safe at the end. I don't know, is, is there an issue of, um, you know, extreme consumer unsafety with chicken uh, or beef? Like, I, I, don't, I don't read, you know, uh, just before our interview, I was reading the paper, so I'm pretty uh, up to date on reading the newspaper. I don't read um, on a regular basis massive issues in Canada, at least. That's my, you know, area of expertise. I, I don't- I think, think I was thinking about the, I think I was thinking about the US where, you know, in 2003, there was a study done, there was about 200 raw chickens sold in the New York metropolitan area. And they sort of devised it into four different categories, one being conventional, one being organic, one raised without antibiotics and one kosher. And the study sort of came to the conclusion that kosher was less safe than any of the conventional type of raising of chickens. And they sort of said, anything done, there was an increase in evidence of antibiotic resistant E. coli in some of the kosher chickens, because rather than just looking at the chicken, you have to actually get down to the heart of it and inspect it, which to my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, is a kosher inspection actually doing any of that? Are they actually going deep down into and, and taking a deep dive to sort of see, is there any type of bacteria in the actual animal? Yeah, again, I'm just I'm sorry if I'm an uninteresting guest, but I'm just going to go back to what what I said previously, which is that the CFIA is is really a great organization. They know what they're doing, and our expertise is not in um, you know food safety, looking at listeria or other things like that. So we rely on the governmental agencies for that. I do want to get more back to the issue of halacha and Judaism and things like that. And, and so these larger ethical issues, right? Because I, I think that, you know, th this is where the slice and bites, you know, issue, you know, it started percolating in the past couple of weeks. And I know that the CR doesn't have anything to do with it, but clearly there is some sort of concern, right, within the Jewish community that the way in which, because eating is about community, right? Food, you guys are, I don't know if you think about yourselves as this way, but you are a convener of a community, right? People can get together over food. People get together as Jews, you know, because they're eating, whether it's in a restaurant or at home, um, and you guys facilitate that. And, you know, there was a push with slice and bites, not from you guys, but from other rabbis within the community to sort of say, well, we, we, we want to keep things a little more modest. We don't want to have boys and girls or young men and young women hanging out on a Saturday night. So we're going to take away the kosher. We're going to take away the ability to, to, to eat that. The kosherness is, is absolutely kosher. Um, but there's clearly some conflation always between what happens with what is one is eating and what is happening and like the eating itself. Right. Um, and 
first of all, I find it really shocking that you won't automatically, if somebody is a sex offender, right, ref, like rescind their hashgacha, right? That, and, and because the same way that you would automatically do that for a mashkiach, the same you, you shouldn't be wanting to represent people that are, you know, violators of major norms of, of Judaism, right? To, to go and say, hang on, a somebody, second, hang on a second, hang on, sorry for interrupting, but I, I you know, but you said you'd bring it to the rabbis and you hope the, that, that, that it's fine and it's an issue, yeah, but like I, I would but, say, like, I wouldn't even bring it to the, I, like, yeah, but like, of course, on, if somebody, but hang on, yeah. hang on, hang on a second, hang on a second. We, we, I, I'm sorry, but you, I can't let um, things like that go unchecked. I, I just said this, this is an organization, okay? This mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, maybe in my next life, this will be, um, you know, the Richard Rafkin fiefdom and COR will stand for, um, and the, the R will stand for Rabkin, but it doesn't. So this is an organization. So all I was saying was that we would bring it to, to internally we have the discussion so I, I can't by fiat say what's going to happen here or sure. not. so so you know let, let's I guess take I was a step thinking back. about it I was like well if you're having a discussion that means that somebody's taking the position maybe so we I, should allow I don't it know it hasn't happened before it hasn't happened before yeah well it's happened in the states so we have to be ready like you know, when know, it, 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 it let's hope it never happens let's hope it never happens okay. here but if it would happen I don't know because it's never happened so we have to have a discussion internally and it's not my job well, to ma- make on on the CJ podcast I know this so late breaking news. you're right you're 100 right but but let me ask you this. Have there been instances where you've had these discussions and you've removed somebody's hashgacha for something that is, you know, not purely food related? Or have you have you had these discussions and allowed them to stay? I don't without getting into the details. Yeah, like I, saying, I don't recall. I mean, listen, I've been here for 11 years. I don't recall in my tenure here removing hashgacha because a proprietor had um, was acting inappropriately. I don't remember that happening. I don't remember the question being posed. So I don't even so, remember the question. Hopefully that means that what that is, is that we you're hiring ethical people to to, to be, not hiring, but you are contracting with and you're having relationships with caterers that are all ethical and wonderful people. Right. That's, we're, that's we're in Canada. We're, we're such a great, polite, law-abiding people. Until we're not. Yeah, but you... Until we're not. <laughs> I, yeah, so I, I guess I just would, you know to me that the, the two are coming closer and closer together. And I think that maybe we do have a responsibility to start asking ourselves these questions, even hypothetically, so that we are ready for it. Or maybe asking ourselves, what are the issues that are related to food that are not purely with the food itself? And, and that's where I'm going with it. And I, you know, I, my co-hosts aren't, uh, you know, Ilana's pretty kosher, but she has said that she'll eat at certain places, you know, whatever, um, that are not strictly certified. David, which, which she's a, we, we've talked about it on the show. Uh, we've talked about it on this show. David doesn't keep kosher, um, but has, you know, is aware of kosher and food, right? And you know that there's a lot of non, uh, there, there are people that are not strictly kosher that look to the COR for certain things. Okay. So let me take, take right. this and l- let me take what you're, you're saying. And, and let me, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this on its head, okay? And I'm going to sure. ask the podcasters to be the guests, okay? Mm-hmm. Please. So, uh, okay, and now you're excited. Okay, fine. So <laughs> so this issue happened, uh, I can't remember, within the past year. I'm sure you guys know about it. Maybe it was on the podcast, where Ben and Jerry's decided, right, that they were going to boycott um, Israel to some degree, okay? So the next day, we got all sorts of angry you know, people saying the COR, you guys are taking money because you're certifying Ben and Jerry's. You shouldn't. Okay. And I said, calm down, everybody. We don't certify Ben and Jerry's. Okay. And so all these demands to revoke the COR revoking Hashgaha, everybody just take a deep breath. We have nothing to do with it. But, but 
Uh, now I'm going to turn the question over to you. You guys are the board of rabbis. What do you say? Do you say, um, yeah, you know, boycott, boycotting Israel is unacceptable. We are not uh, participating we, in this and we're going to remove our certification. Remember the ramifications that come along with that is you have a contract with them. So you may likely be sued because I'm sure they have millions of dollars in packaging that has the kosher symbol on it. Um, and also now a lot of people who keep kosher are not going to be eating kosher because of Ben Jerry's. And then also could be the next time around when there's a political issue, they say, oh yeah, you guys revoke kosher certification for that. Well, we want you to revoke for this. And everybody's cause is going to say, well, we don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like this. We don't like that. We want you to get on board on our boycott. So what do you guys do, podcasters? You're the board of rabbis. What do you say? Are you are you equating the this of a political issue with a an issue that Avi has brought up earlier where someone is accused of sexual assault? Are you correlating the two at all together? No. I'm trying to have a different discussion because, um, as I said before, I cannot opine on it. And so I'm trying to make this an inter interesting show. I'm curious to hear Avi's take is since he is an actual rabbi. Well, no, I want to hear you guys on the first. board of rabbis. I definitely want to hear you guys before I get in on this. David, why don't you go for it? I'm still formulating my thoughts. I, I'm just curious because you said you were not actually certifying them at all. So then what role are you playing if you are not certifying Ben and Jerry's? This is a hypothetical question. Because you guys are asking me hypothetical questions, so I'm going to ask you. Because it's <laughs> it is a great question. No, I think it's a great question. I think that one's really right? and tricky I think it's because real. there's a lot of different opinions within the Jewish community. And while, let's say in in Toronto for sure, the vast majority of Jews do support Israel, there are also some Jews who don't and actually would want it to be boycotted. I'm not one of those people, but I think that it becomes more nuanced when it's not just like streamlined, but I guess it depends on, you know, even in, in the more religious communities too, if there are certain sects of Hasids who might not want to support that or anyway, there's, it becomes more complex. I can't, to be honest right now, I'm feeling stumped because it is, it's not black and white. So look, I think that you're right in that these questions should be debated. Um, I think that it depends on what the position of the COR is vis-a-vis -vis Israel, right? And if the COR was staunchly, you know, Zionist, um, they might be entirely valid by going and saying, we are going to uh, not, we, it's not up to us to remove Ben and Jerry's certification, but going forward, uh, we're not saying that it's not kosher, but we are not going to allow it as part of our establishment. Right? And I think that the COR would be entirely valid if the COR had a strong Zionist position to say, we don't want this in our establishments. We're not saying it's not kosher, but it's not for us anymore. Right? I, I would think that that's entirely okay. But if the COR was Zionist agnostic and said, we don't really have a position, then they'll say, listen, it's not up to us to go and, and, and discuss these matters. And I think that there are times when the COR probably would wade into these types of um, issues um, and say that we're not going to certify it. Um, and I'm, I, that's where the whole like discussion really originated is to sort of say, what are these cases and where does the COR actually discuss this, right? I think that the entire thing of hypotheticals is, is a complete red herring, by the way, because halacha, right? And the, the entire practice of studying Torah and studying halacha and studying Talmud and studying all of these halachic discussions in a hypothetical manner is so that when the discussions become practical, we have the answers at the ready. A good example of that is sous vide cooking, right? Before sous vide cooking, there was a lot of halachic discussions, right, that happened entirely theoretically that all of a sudden got applied to how sous vide is used on Shabbat, how sous vide is used with regards to kosher, um, you know, uh, meat versus milk and, and, and things along these lines, right? So 
hypothetical discussions are useful and important so that when we have these questions come up, we have at the ready answers um, available to us without having to say, well, we're going to deliberate for weeks at a time. I would hope, for example, that the COR would be discussing even in camera, right, amongst its rabbis to go and say, right, what would happen if, you know, the case in, in Tinek happened in Toronto or it happened in Montreal or, and, for, or happened with a company that we are certifying? What would we do so that when it happens, you actually have principles at the ready for it, right? So I don't think that you turning those tables, I think that it is a very good question. And I think the COR should be ready and thinking about these things as before they come up so that when they come up, you actually have thought these things through the same way you've thought through many, many um, tiny aspects of the food-related halachot, right, that aren't necessarily specifically practical um, in the moment, so that when they become relevant, you actually have facility with these discussions and with these laws and, and, and ways of going forward. Okay, David, what do you say? Do you remove the, the hashgacha, the certification on Ben and Jerry's or not? <laughs> I think it really depends on what your organization is and what it wants to stand for. If you are merely, if you're, if you are representing kosher products, right, that is your lane. That is the lane that you will do. Uh, I agree with you where you come out and say, well, if we take one political position right now, then we're going to have to take more political decisions down the road. But I do agree with Avi to sort of say, these are great questions that you should be asking yourselves first to know, because these questions will come at you multiple times. Um, whether it's Israel, whether it's kosher products, whether it's sexual assaults, whether it's being fired for not having a particular interpretation of halakhic law. I think these are things that your organization probably may and should prepare for. Okay, so it seems like what we have here is a difference of opinion. And um, that is exactly why- Very Jewish. Jewish. And that's exactly why we have a board of rabbis when we have these policy decisions that come up that we have to sit down and talk about them and debate them. I'll give you another example. I'll give you another example if you want. So what do you say to, because this is, I think, in the realm of the questions that you're asking, what do you say to bacon-flavored potato chips, for example? Okay. Sounds delightful. Sounds <laughs> delightful. Same question, right? Okay. Because we okay. have to talk about similar things. The bacon similar. chips. Right. Yeah. Um, from Ruffles. I love that they're, they're, they're dairy. Right. And I, I understand enough about industrial kashrut to know that bacon often bacon flavoring can, can have a dairy component. Um, I find it <laughs> funny, but I think that there's nothing wrong with having even impossible pork because the, the impossible is a modifier and is totally, you know, it's there. And I, maybe I don't have the same visceral reaction to pork, you know, in that way. And, and you should know, by the way, that the, uh, another Canadian hashgacha, right, the kosher check out of Vancouver, certifies a product that has pork, right, on the label, right? One of their frozen, you know, uh, vegetarian, uh, like, meat products is, has a pork, you know, on, you know, on the cover, right? It says pork something or other, or whatever. We talked about this when the impossible part came out. And for me, I actually always found it very strange that even the fake versions had like certifications on them. I think it's different when you're eating something like fake shrimp, when you've had that at a kosher sushi restaurants, it clearly isn't shrimp. Like you, you can see that it looks different. Whereas something like, I don't know why, but for me seeing pig related things does actually viscerally make me kind of a bit. I don't know. It, it, it rubs me a little bit the wrong way to see like a bacon flavored chip and have the symbol on it. And I, I don't know if I have like a huge enough problem that I feel like it needs to come off, but I do find it questionable. And I don't know that it needs to be there. Like, why are we going out of our way to have 
this flavor chip. Like we can have all the other flavors. Because bacon tastes wonderful. That's that's the reason why. Well, I think you're the only so one good. on this call that has this opinion, David. <laughs> so what was this what was the COR's uh, deliberations around this, just out of curiosity? Yeah. So this is, I think, in also the realm of what you're talking about, which is um, decisions that are non strictly is it kosher or non kosher, but is, is a policy. So these types of products, let's say all the simulated bacon products are, let, let's assume that they're 100% kosher, right? Um, but there's a sensitivity which Ilana has expressed. And I would say if we took a poll of, I don't know, kosher consumers, we might find that, again, I'm just, just, ballparking this, but I would guess 60% maybe would say that it's okay. I've got no problem with it. And 40% would say, no, this is, I don't like this. I get an angry phone call once a month from the same guy who is like livid that we've got bacon flavored potato chips and he will not stop calling me. And this is not an invitation to other people to call me to complain. I was going to say, uh, if he misses a no. month, do we, I'll call, I'll, I'll just so you can get the regularity. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, so there are people who are livid and upset that this just, just kind of like Elon expressed. And so our, the way we've, we've sliced it is that if there is some indication that this is simulated, flavored, vegetarian, something, something like that on the label, then we go ahead with it. So it'll say, you know, somewhere bacon flavored, simulated, some sort of indication that it is. Um, but if, you know, if it were, if there were these pork chips, it might be more without any indication that it's simulated flavored, nothing. It just said pork chips. And, and in a, you have to look at, and there's a COR on it. We might have an issue with it. Again, we haven't had that each time it's been, you know, the, the, the people who manufacture the products also want an indication to people who are vegetarian or others um, or kosher consumers who know that, oh yeah, this isn't real. Is so, this an invitation to the Impossible Company to uh, contact the COR because Impossible is enough of a uh, modifier that you will actually do the pork even though other people won't? I don't know. We'd have to bring it to the Board of Rabbis and <laughs> it's not course, an invitation. Of course. Um, just one last thing, because based on what you were saying there in terms of like public perception, public uh, discourse and discussion, does that mean that if there was enough of a demand and not in a outcry and we demand and you guys are horrible people for not thinking about this, but if there was a re reasonable uh, enough demand from the majority of kosher consumers to say, we actually care about the larger ethical considerations um, around kashrut. Let's say, to, to use the animals, for example, we only, we were gladly pay if there was enough of a demand from the kosher world um, to say, we, we will gladly pay double for our meat, but we want it to be raised in as ethical and humane a way as possible. Um, will you make that your standard? Would that be a consideration that the COR would actually take into consideration? So this would have to come from the ground up and it would have to come sure. from, it would have That's to all come I'm saying. also, right? It, it would have to- It's not be, a call to you. I'm, I'm saying that if you say yes, then I, to me, the call then becomes on the kosher consumers who care about this to say, we should be asking for this more. And if you're not doing it, it's because the demand isn't there. Right. I, I just want to fin finish my thought here. It, it would have to come from the ground up and it would have to come as a market-based solution. What I mean is that the consumers would then have to speak to- uh, I guess the retailers and the retailers would then speak to the manufacturers the, and say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of people who want this 
And then the people who are in the meat processing business would say, okay, you know what, let's source it. Let's do it in this way. And of course we would give certification for something like this. Of so course. if a lot more people were buying T-Ferret, for example, then, then Marvid would start changing their tune and be going along with T-Ferret's practices. Right. But, but I, I don't know their business at all, but I'm going to assume that T-Ferret is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of percent of Marvel's yeah, business. Probably true. So that's but that's what I'm trying to get at is that if more, many more people were doing it and they were selling out constantly, Marvid would go and say, hey, this is important, right? We should open up a segment devoted to this. Right. Okay. Interesting. Well, this has been most enlightening. Um, Richard, thank you for coming on. If you uh, ever want to discuss kosher again with the Canadian uh, world, feel free to come on to Bojor Chai. And if we have any other questions, I'm sure we'll reach out to you again. Thank you, guys. I hope you enjoyed your position as being the Board of Rabbis just for a day. It was lovely. Thank you for the honor. Pleasure. Take care. Excellent. You can find links to uh, what we spoke about in the show notes. You can email us, of course, as always, at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. And now for a real life example of a kosher uh, incident that happened, uh, I reached out to Zane Polatsky about his story and how his mustard ended up certified kosher. All right, so I'm here with uh, with Zane Kaplansky of uh, Kaplansky's Deli, Kaplansky's Mustard. Uh, I heard that you had some sort of issue with the uh, with the kosherness of your mustard. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. To, to, to spoiler alert, we are kosher now. So we did have a lot of... And it's wonderful mustard. Thank you. And, and it is, it is uh, certified by COR in Toronto. But uh, our previous manufacturer was in Montreal, just outside of Montreal. And when I tried to get uh, MK to certify the mustard, they, they made my life impossible, frankly. And this was just the latest in a string of disappointments, to put it, to put it mildly with the world of, of kosher. Um, I mean, it's a generational issue that I have, but that's a story for another time. But MK basically wanted me to disavow my own name. And there is no way on God's good earth that I would, I would ever do that. So what did they actually want you to do in order to be kosher from the MK? They, they wanted me to print a line on my, on my jar that says that this mustard is not related to Kaplansky's delicatessen. When in reality, it's the same exact mustard and it's what you've been using for, you know, decades. It's the same recipe. It's whatever it is, right? I mean, yes. And even beyond that, we had previously been certified COR as Kaplansky's Deli while we operated four different non-kosher restaurants in the city of Toronto. And uh, now for whatever reason. And in fact, the rabbi at, at MK said to me, you know, mustard is inherently kosher. Water is kosher. There really should be no big obstacles for this. And I said, you're right, rabbi. And, and I appreciate that. But when at the last possible moment, and this was the part that bothered me the most, was they, they, they made us jump through hoop after hoop after hoop and us and our manufacturer. And to be honest with you, they, they really damaged my relationship with the manufacturer 
because she did so much work on this. And at the last possible second, they said, oh, one more thing. You ever watch Columbo, the TV show? We have to have One this more thing. thing. And this is always going to be the grabber. You have to print a line on your jar that says, this is not related to the brand that you've spent your lifetime building. Yeah. You know, when I heard this, when you had first told me this, I, uh, I went and I did a bit of research at my local, uh, you know, fridge counter in the, the kosher deli section at the, the, the supermarket. And I went and I looked. I know that, I know, I don't, I'm going to show you. We're, we're talking audio here, people. But uh, what do you see here? What, what is that saying? That's Moishe's. It's Moishes a pickle pickles. jar from Moishe's Pickles. Now, Moishe's actually doesn't even exist anymore. Um, um, I don't know if you'll be able to see this over the screen, but um, there's an MK on it. And uh, underneath it, it says, I don't know if you can read that. Do you read that for our customers? The kosher the of this product is not applied to the restaurant. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly it. what the MK does. But if you, I went to buy right next to it was Nathan's Pickles, right? And Nathan's is not a kosher establishment in New York City. And the OU just has a regular OU on it. So clearly this is some kosher organizations have this policy and others don't, but you know, there's no uniformity in terms of, you know, these types of labelings. And um, to me, when somebody goes and says, you know, we want to dissociate what's going on with the product with what's going on with the individual, you know, sometimes you, know, you are Kaplansky to be able to say that your deli is not you or the kosherness and they're totally separate things. I can see why it can be really, really difficult. Um, the COR never gave you an issue with this. And uh, I have you, was there any discussion about this? Was there any point where you were saying? No, I mean, part of what happens is on the manufacturing level, uh, the factory itself that we work at is covered by COR. And so they get audited, they get visited, and they and they in the license. In the case of the facility in Marieville, Quebec, that I was previously working with, because they aren't a license holder, and I would have to get my run of mustard supervised, um, I would have to pay a lot of money to do that, and I was willing to do that because enough people have asked me to to have a but kosher the brand. Yeah. And even despite all of my past, all of my history, and all of the the, the backstory, I mean, you, you know the story. You know, the, the kosher authority ruined my great-grandfather's life, and I'm named for him. And uh, uh, I was still willing to do it. And at the last minute, after all of the work, hours and hours and hours, by me and the manufacturer, they pull out this, oh, yeah, just one last thing. We have to get all of the labels reprinted now? That's what you're asking us to do, and you're asking us to to, you know, basically again disavow the brand that I've worked so hard to build. It was it was unconscionable. Well, thanks for sharing the story. Um, people should go and buy uh, Kaplansky's uh, mustard. It's the one with the the horses and the and the little radishes on it. Have the horseradish and the the retro one has got the little cassettes. <laughs> no in horses were no horses were used in the manufacturing of my mustard. They're vegan. All of my mustards are vegan. I'm surprised they didn't tell you. I'm surprised they didn't make you say that there's no actual horse on the, you know, in the product. And that's it. Um, well, good luck. Um, go to Kaplansky's if you don't keep kosher. Um, but if you do keep kosher, buy Kaplansky's mustard. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. 
Our word of wisdom this week comes from Rabbi Aliza Libin Baranovsky and Rabbi Amy Newman. Rabbi Libin Baranovsky teaches at the Charles E. Smith Day School in Rockville, Maryland, and Rabbi Newman is a teacher and administrator at the Solomon Schechter Day School in Newton, Massachusetts. They are both proud Torontonians and both graduated from Yeshivat Maharat this week. Hi, Amy. Hi, Aliza. In this week's Parsha, there's a lot of complaining by the people, and they complain and complain and complain mostly about the food, and then... Moses gets so overwhelmed by leading the people that he tells God he has had enough and God needs to sort of replace him, help him out, give him support. So God uh, has him choose 70 people and they come into uh, come to the tents of meeting and they leave where the people are. They come to Moses and they prophesy and then they stop. And then immediately thereafter, uh, there's these two other guys, Aldad and Medad, and they are prophesizing in the camp. They didn't come down with everyone else. They're like out with the people. And Joshua really doesn't like this. He says, uh, Moshe, you've got to lock these people up. And Moshe responds, um, don't lock them up. Like everyone should be prophesizing and God should give the spirit to everyone. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about why Joshua felt that way and if you sympathize with Joshua in any way when he said, lock him up. So I really, um, I empathize so much. I relate so much to Moshe in this whole episode as both a mom of young children and as a middle school teacher. Um, the way, I don't know if you feel, they feel this from either the mom or the teacher side, but the way Moshe complains to God and just vents to God saying like, there's too much and I'm not there. Like, and did I conceive them and did I carry them and it's too much for me and I'd rather die than do this because I just can't do it by myself and why did you choose me for this? Um, and sort of the overwhelm that he feels, that he describes really sounds so real to my experience um, as an overwhelmed mother and teacher. And then, and so then Eldad and Maydad seem so real as students I know or as children I know who... Um, I, I actually am pretty forgiving of them. I think, I don't think it's clear that they were trying to be bad or wrong or anything. They just sort of like had their own understanding of the assignment. Um, and then Joshua also seems so real as the kid who gets upset when they see someone, either as a kid who gets upset when they see someone like not painting inside the lines, um, not prophesying in the right place, um, or um, as like the busybody parent at the playground or at shul or somewhere who says to me like, did you know that your child's eating sugar? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Just let them eat sugar. Um, so I really see, I really see those types like in my real life. But uh, Moshe's the one I want to hug. I totally hear that. Um, I wonder if Joshua, because he doesn't have Moshe's responsibility, uh, can't fully understand where Moshe's coming from. Like, I mean, Joshua does have responsibilities, but he doesn't feel the pressure the way Moshe feels the pressure. And so he can sort of look at it from an abstract context and say, this is how it should be. But Moshe's living in this real world and saying, in the real I world, the best thing possible is for more people to experience the divine spirit. Just one of the reasons I, I wanted us to talk about this text today is thinking about the way Torah study has been made so much more accessible to people in our generation, you know, both uh, to women through all kinds of different schools, to all kinds of different Jews, and through the internet, through websites like Safaria and Al Hatora. There's so much access um, 
And it's almost like we could have a conversation about maybe there are people who don't think it's an unfettered good, but we know Moshe would say all the people should have access. Right. And that's something that that's so beautiful. I love that idea. That's something that Steinzalt said about his commentary on the Talmud, right? That like we're expanding access, we're expanding access to our wisdom and to these texts. I love that. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I am. Um, we have to wrap up in a second. But I was thinking about how I learned these stories as a teenager. Um, I was very involved in the Canadian National Chidon Tanakh when I was Uh, in middle and high school and learning these stories as a teenager and feeling the pain of Moshe and feeling the pain of the people I think there's a lot there for us to really understand and I think the only shame is that there's so many good stories in this Parsha that we don't get to give them all tremendous attention but I think we have to build empathy and when we read these stories we can really build empathy for people with a wide range of experiences who are all just trying to connect to god in their own way right i think i think each player in this episode um has ways that we can um try to empathize and connect with what they're experiencing and um we might each experience people in our own lives who are who are moshe who are eldad and mezad who are joshua um and each at our own moments we might each be each one we each might be a different one of these And now time for our nachas, that thing that makes us feel good over the past, something happened over the past week. Um, Alana, what's your nachas of the week? So I don't know if you watched the Tonys, but there was a great moment where Billy Crystal scatted in Yiddish, and it is very entertaining. Um, he makes an apology to Ella Fitzgerald if she's listening, then maybe his scatting is not up to par and then launches into it and then includes the audience and they have to do a call and response in Yiddish and everyone he's like watch the spit because of all the chuz. um it's it's quite fun we can maybe poke can you give us a little rendition <laughs> I can't I don't know how to speak Yiddish first of all so no but I can share the the link in the show notes if anyone is curious it is quite fun I am going to reserve judgment please ask me again next week because uh, I've already st- I haven't seen it but I've already seen the Yiddish backlash to this piece really um, oh from Yiddish people oh, maybe it's because I don't like speak this Yiddish. was offensive it's offensive or, he's and, Jewish and this is like a it was a prop but no, but he was like doing it in a way that he was like, making up yeah, the Yiddish. And oh, that was, I don't know. I, I don't want to get into it. I just assumed it was like all said, real I Yiddish. Seen it. But maybe that was where my uh, judgment is off. Let's put a pin in Billy Crystal's Yiddish and uh, revisit it next week. But that is absolutely, if it made you feel fun, um, it's the anti Are you busting so my nafas, Avi? You're like, this no, is no I'm longer nafas because it's, it's wrong. <laughs> I'm telling you that some people might think so, but if you got nachas out of it, you should get okay, nachas out we'll of it. we'll find out. I guess we'll find out if it's real Yiddish and maybe that will change everything. David, what's your nachas? Uh, so this whole episode, we've been talking about food and it got me really hungry and thinking about something I... I recommended a few months ago, the show Somebody Feed Phil. Now, when I recommended it, my parents sat down and watched it and they couldn't even get through an entire episode. And they, it was either for his gluttony or for his over-the-topness, and it's true. He is like, Phil Rosenthal is the antithesis of a chef like Anthony Bourdain. Phil is exuberant, he hugs people when they feed him. And at first, while it bothered me, you know, he grows on you, his charm, his, his joyfulness, his obsession with eating pig at nearly every single meal. And I find that this is so wonderful because this show is so Jewy, right? It is filled with um, Jewish 
history, with Holocaust stories from his father, from old Borscht Belt humor, Phil just oozes Judaism, and yet that man cannot go a meal, a breakfast, lunch, or a dinner without tearing in to some trafe. And these things, these two very diametrically opposed things, go hand in hand so well for this show. So for anyone who's Try to watch it like my folks. I really say give it up, give it a season, and he will you will fall in love with Phil Rosenthal. Phil Rosenthal, he uses Judaism and he uses lard. <laughs> um, That's a yes, disgusting. Image. The best of us do. Um, I too am going to um do a food based nachos, but again, you see, Alana, this is a great nachos, but somebody else is going to say, I didn't like it. And it's totally valid because I had an awesome time. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island right now. Uh, I'm doing some rabbinic work. I'm actually doing some conversions. Um, Providence is the home of uh, Lighthouse Kosher, which has had its share of, let me tell you, um, kosher drama. Um, and if you, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this offline sometime or Google it and you'll figure it out. Um, but I went to this place, Plant City in Providence, um, which is certified kosher by my friend, uh, Rabbi Barry Dollinger. And um, it was awesome. Um, they have three different kosher, uh, three different uh, place, like restaurants within one like space. Um, they have an Italian place. They have uh, American like burgers and fries, oh, uh, burgers so and Jewish. like chicken and stuff. And they have Mexican. No, no. It is oh, entirely Mexican. Meant for the no Mexican, yeah, so that's do, new. It's not sushi. But it's not, it's not a Jewish place. It's actually open on oh. Shabbat, um, but it's certified kosher. It's entirely vegan. So they do um, Italian pasta, um, uh, pizzas, stuff like that. They do chicken and burgers, and then they, and then they do Mexican. Uh, and then they have a bakery and then a cocktail bar, like a speakeasy cocktail bar. Um, all of these places are certified kosher. They're not owned by a Jewish person, so you can be open on Shabbat. Oh, that, um, that and was they're what I was all entirely plant-based. Um, and it was all wonderful. I had like chicken and waffles oh. and uh, oh, it was so good um, with like a chili cheese fries, like as a side. Do I need to go to Rhode uh, Island now? I had, that was not on the plans, but uh, now I kind of want to um, go. I would say it's worth a trip and eating here like five times at this place. So shout out to Plant City. And I'm sure there are people that go and say, no, that's disgusting and horrible, whatever. My, my favorite piece about this is that uh, my friend gets a lot of flack um, for certifying a lot of places like this. And he's very quick to certify. And he says he wants to give kosher consumers all sorts of options. Um, a lot of religious people rail against it publicly. Um, and yet they're always at his restaurants, at the restaurants that he certifies, right? He says, like, I was like, they, they talk about this as a problem that you're doing it and you don't like it. And he goes, yeah, but they're always here. So that's fascinating. Um, so uh, Plant City, check it out um, if you're ever in Rhode Island. Um, although he does many, many other certifying kosher restaurants, um, check him out. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of June 17th, Shabbat Parashat Bechukotai. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, we'd love it if you told a friend about it. We're sure they would like it too. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 